One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. It's the Irish Times Second Captains Podcast. Oh, my David here with Kieran Murphy and Ken Erty. Hi, guys. Can I ask you, gentlemen, first of all, what is the highest level of award you've ever won? You know, have you have you ever been the Connacht champion or something, Murph? Best dressed man in Temple Oak, Ken, anything like that? Uh, I won uh, Player of the Tournament at the Eggs Off Self and Gary Moore. Perfect. Uh, which is, uh, well, I, I, listen, I'll, I'll just give you the abbreviated five minute version. Um, the Eggs Off Cup is. Uh, a tournament played every Easter It's now defunct uh, Cross-border uh, Two teams for goal, two teams for male uh, Generally seen as an excellent excuse To go to a neighbouring town And get drunk uh, Over the Easter weekend And uh, I'm proud to say that I've won the player of the tournament in that Not once, but twice Really bringing communities <laughs> together that tournament That's by the what it's things. all about That's Finally about. putting to, to bed all the misunderstandings over yeah. the years exactly. All the cultural let's, differences Let's just try and settle it over a drink Ken? Uh, I can't remember ever winning anything. Anything. I don't think so. Were you not a, sprint, uh, a swimmer of rare ability, Ken? Not rare ability. <laughs> pretty average ability. Of quite common ability. Yeah. Well, step aside, lads, because today in studio, we've got a world champ. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen... 17 unanswered punches, 15 of them really hurt. All the Irish, everyone in the house are hurting. I heard all the cheers, and he got me through that fight. Matt Carball was giving me a nightmare, and I found it really hard in there. But anyway, listen, I'm a midway fighter, I'm a champion now, I want to defend my belt in Ireland, and I'll fight the best in the world. Congratulations, Andy. Up the Irish, give me Hard left hand, oh. Oh. By TKO victory, and now the WBO middleweight champion of the world, Irish Andy Lee. Love 
lovely memories there of Andy's world title victory WBO middleweight title win against Matt Karaboff in December I must confess Murph I've listened to that clip twice now mm. uh, once ahead of recording the podcast and now again and each time I get fooled at the start when the commentator is counting I think it's it's the ref count after Karaboff and I keep forgetting that A it was a, a technical knockout and B you don't have to count to 17. No rules, not, not WBO, not WBA, nobody has a 17 second count. No, no. 10 no. usually does it. Yeah, that'll do it. You can't get up after 10 seconds, it's probably a good idea to... A uh, 17 second knockdown. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, it's seven more seconds to recover. I mean, I, I do actually think that, you know, the history of boxing could be a very different, mm. could be a very different landscape. We on. spoke to Andy on the phone from London a couple of days after he won the WBO title, but haven't had a chance to get him in the studio now. He's in Dublin before heading back to Monte Carlo, where he's training for his first defence against Peter Quillen in Brooklyn on April 11th. It's going to be an absolutely amazing fight. It's on NBC Sports. They're coming back to boxing for the first time in around 30 years. He's going into Quillen's hometown. We talked a bit about Quillen on last week's show, but he, mm. he's based, well, he's actually from Michigan, but has been based in Brooklyn for a number of uh, number New York, years. He thanked New York for making him a man. That chat in December, if you remember, we chatted to Andy, and he also put us on to Adam Booth, his trainer, who was with Andy about to rewatch the fight. And the chat with Adam was interesting because it was really sharp analysis of how they put together the tactical plan to beat Karpov, interrupted only by apologies for how much tequila Adam had on board. <laughs> um, I get the sense there's not a huge amount of drinking done in the, uh, in the training camp. So uh, I, think, I think we'll forgive them a day of celebration when they take home the world title. I also think we're going to have an excited US Murph today because we're going to talk about this. The autumn wind is a pirate, blustering in from sea, with a rollicking song he sweeps along, swaggering boisterously. His face is weather-beaten, he wears a hooded sash, with a silver hat about his head, and a bristling black moustache. He growls as he storms the country. A villain big and bold. And the trees all shake and quiver and quake as he robs them of their gold. The autumn wind is a raider, pillaging just for fun. He'll knock you round and upside down and laugh when he's conquered and won. That's basically, a, uh, that's basically a Ken Early uh, Monday morning Irish Times column set oh, to music. What was that? I loved your reaction there, Ken. What, what was it? Was that it just staggered you there. Among the most ridiculous things I've ever heard about. <laughs> that was uh, the NFL films. Uh, <clears throat> basically, their their thoughts on the Oakland Raiders. <laughs> Obviously, uh, it was football related. Ken, We're talking, uh, yeah. And uh, sometimes uh, when we flag a piece, play a bit of audio, and Ken poo-poos it straight away. Mm. I, it, it concerns me because I want to build up what we're talking about. But I do feel, first of all, that audio, you can't, you can't unhear that. I mean, that's such yeah. dramatic audio. And secondly, it is a bit ridiculous. I mean, yeah. the, the NFL, okay, while we're talking about this, Murph, is Ed Sable recently passed away, 98 years of age when he passed away. Himself and his son, Steve, who died a couple of years ago, had, uh, well, Ed had set up NFL films and Steve had then taken it on to new levels. This is back in the 1960s. Essentially, any of the stuff you watch today, any of the America's Game type things, any, anything where American footballers are mic'd up, even super slow-mos, all these kind of things were invented by Ed and Steve Sable uh, and set to ridiculously over-the-top music and ridiculous narration. Voiceovers by members of the greatest generation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> John Facenda was the guy's name, uh, otherwise known as the voice of God, uh, which I think oh, you could okay. uh, probably oh, understand when you listen to this. But uh, Not bombastic at all. No, no, no. But, uh, yeah, like, 
the, the, all of the brilliant footage that you see, as you say, of American football from the 60s and 70s, all shot by this. Every sport deserves an NFL films in a lot of ways uh, because it mythologizes the players and the managers and the coaches and all the rest to an absurd degree. But they're brilliant. They're unbelievably watchable. And, uh, yeah, I'd be really interested to hear what uh, U.S. Murph thinks of it all because I'm sure, you know, like the, the idea of that being a way to consume your sport is like, like as a kid that must have just been so much fun to watch a show kind of like that you know but it's um yeah i mean the, the all of the slow-mos apparently sam the, the nfl film started in 1962 and the filmmaker sam peckinpah was so taken by all of the slow motion replays and all of the like that they would pick out you know a tiny detail on a player's helmet or something like that and they would you know, they'd show that in slow motion or whatever. Sam Peckinpah was so taken by this way of shooting something that all of his stuff in the... A lot of the slow-mo stuff in The Wild Bunch, one of Peckinpah's most famous ever movies, a right. Western, was actually inspired by NFL films. Oh. He said it himself, <laughs> kind of bizarrely, you know. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so, I mean, it's obviously had an impact even beyond American football. Yeah, we're looking forward to what US Murph has to say about that in a little while. But right now, delighted to have in studio the WBO World Middleweight Champion, Andy Lee. Andy, how are you? Good, very good. It's the first time we've had you in studio since you... I, I should say, by the way, Murph, we, we should put it on the record here that Andy's been good enough to bring in the belt. Yeah, uh, he, well. He's taken it out of its, um, its, its own security system, which is uh, yeah. massive, uh, amazing... Uh, almost impossible to break into briefcase. And yeah, uh, uh, but, uh, well, I think it's only right that it be hermetically sealed in some sort of uh, yeah, uh, impregnable box. That's what it's all about, really. Well, I feel it? a bit like um, a bit aggrieved because I've been coming in here now for a number of years, and how many times have we been on this podcast? And then I was like, "Oh yeah, bring in the belt, and we'll give you all a bunch of hoodies." <laughs> <laughs> and like I was like to Mark. You know, I shouldn't have to bring in the belt like, after all these years. The hoodies should pretty you much know, be yeah. uh, done and It was always Don't the worry. tantalizing part of your career, yeah. Andy. Could, I still haven't seen it yet. I still haven't seen this, this, <laughs> this hoodie yet. We're, we're well, sure we have we'll, we'll do the interview first. In the, the, yeah. the last time we spoke to you uh, was... I'm not continuing with this podcast. Until until you get the hoodies, yeah. As long as we have a verbal guarantee. Mark, is there a verbal guarantee? <laughs> more than that, we're going to bring over the hoodies now. Murph, you, okay. you can describe the weight of the belt in the meantime. It's, yeah, it's unbelievable. It weighs more than some of the super bantamweight boxers. Yeah, exactly. That's why they have so much trouble uh, <laughs> now, around these. Mark Morgan. He has to wear the hoodie. Mark Morgan yeah, is bringing over the hoodie. That's great. The beautiful yeah. leather. It's, it's going to drape over Andy's leather jacket. <laughs> yeah. uh, the scarf looks weird. Are you happy enough with that, Andy? Yeah, that's it. Now we're, we, we can continue. Now, <laughs> we can now continue, continue with the podcast. The last time we spoke to you over the phone, this is the first time we've had you in studio, but we spoke to you, uh, it was a couple of, you'd just gotten back to London. You were sitting down to that's watch right. the fight with Adam Booth and friends and family. I, I guess that was a pretty fun day. Yeah, it was. Um, and it was, yeah, it was a great moment and it was a great day as well just come back and even the whole flight home. Like, I'd, you know, you, I didn't even watch one movie on the flight home. I just kind of buzzed off listening to music and watching, looking at through the pictures that I'd saved them, you know, that I'd down, downloaded from the internet and saved. And yeah, I spoke to you guys on the steps and it was still a bit surreal at that stage. And I wasn't sure, like, I'd watched the fight. I hadn't seen the fight at the time. And then we went downstairs, watched it. And yeah, it was just a great day. Me and Adam throughout the day drank a bottle of tequila between us and we just had just had a great day and it was like that for a long time after the fight you know yeah there were so many I'm sure nice moments nice days arriving back to to Ireland there were lovely photos I remember the front of the Irish Times and mm. elsewhere of yourself and your mum and, and you went down had your homecoming in Limerick is there any one particular moment that stands out for you no that would be yeah the homecoming in Limerick and then um, 
going to the Munster match, that was pretty nice. Oh, you know, yeah. at halftime, went out onto the pitch and got to go backstage and uh, sat in the stands with um, Peter O'Mahony and Paul O'Connell. It was pretty special. Like I didn't expect it to be so good. Like a pre, you know, pre-match meal and uh, Alan Quinlan was there and um, Peter Classy. We had a bit of a chat like on stage. It was it was a great day, you know. And back, I went I even got to go back into the dressing room after, and you know they all sang the song and it was, it was really good, you know, like uh, goosebumps kind of stuff. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. Those photos look great as well. The boys were hanging out of you. Yeah, yeah. I was just you know I was I was thrilled to just to be sitting next to like it was great, you know and. Uh, yeah, there was loads of like coming back to Castle Connell and just just walking around the streets like and people coming up to you and it's still happening like just people saying well done and great fight and yeah it means a lot. Has any anything much changed in your life in the last couple of months? Not really, no, nothing at all. I, I personally like I'm very happy with myself, you know, um, like uh, just a relief and uh, contentment to know that I finally got to where I wanted to be and it'll never be changed now after all. Like. You know, because you guys know well that just in and out of here all the time, winning fights and then losing fights, and then not, something's going to happen. I have a title fight lined up, then it didn't happen, and blah, blah, blah. But finally, just to get there is, is, is a great relief. Have you been able to, yeah, you say relief, have you been able to relax a little bit in the sense that you've got there now, and I know you're, it's all systems going out for your defence in April, but is there a party that can just you've had ups and downs in your career at times you look like you were going to hit the top it would stall then once or twice now you've actually become a world champion is, is there a sense of is relaxation the right word even um maybe yeah well i said to adam like when i went back straight back um to training i said look um i you know i'm fully aware about you know guys win titles and then they lose them straight away because they get i don't know what if they get comfortable or whatever but i said like we have to maintain nothing's going to change in the training and and he said, no, don't be worrying about that. He said, you're doing everything right. You're back here. I was back there on the 12th of January training, so there wasn't much, you know, rest time after the fight. And he said, you, you know, like, you're not going out. You're not partying. You're not celebrating. You're, you're training hard every day. And so you've got the benefit of being champion now. You can relax. And there's no the pressure is not on you in, in a sense. And you not all you have to do is perform. And that's, you know, that's, that's pretty much true. And I found myself, like, in the training, um, you know, I was always like wanted to push myself in the training, but like now that you're a champion, you kind of set, try to set an example, especially with the other guys who are there, the two younger guys who are there with us. Um, so you're you're training harder, if anything. Yeah, and just making sure like I'm not the last one home okay. in the runs and stuff like that, you know. So yeah, yeah. Uh, just I suppose relax maybe is is the wrong word. You know that you know it's, it maybe it's it's a weight off your shoulder, but you know yeah. it's, it's it, it'll allow you to push on as opposed to sort of relaxing yeah, into, a, into yeah, a situation where you're yeah. a world champ. And I think it was, I don't know if it was a conscious um, decision by Adam, like, he was like, as soon as, like, Christmas was always, so when are you coming back, when, no, get back, when are you back into the gym? Um, and this fight with, with Peter Quillen was always kind of on the cards, even over Christmas we were talking about it, like, possibility of having so. Like I said, he hadn't, I did the Late Late Show, and then the next day I was on the, I was on the plane back to, the day after I was on the plane back to Monaco, and I was back in the gym Monday morning, so, there's been no real time to relax or to, you know, think about, oh, I'm champion now. I get too comfortable with it walking around and thinking, like, getting ahead of myself. So, uh, like, like three weeks after winning the fight, I was back in the gym doing what I was doing, like, the week before the fight. So there was, and in the same environment, same people, and there was no, there was no change. Have you had to become a little bit more hard-nosed on the business side of things as well? Peter Quillen is the guy you're fighting now, an undefeated fighter in his backyard in Brooklyn. 
uh, and your team have paid some money for Billy Joe Saunders to step aside. A fight that looks on paper easier, could have been at home, could have been in Ireland. Are you having to think of this now that you're world champion, it's time to get the big paydays while you can? Is that, is that the, the, the main part of the thinking behind going over to New York to fight winner? Yeah, that's some, one part of the thinking and uh, a, a big part of the thinking. Um, but also, Quillen is considered, outside of Golovkin, maybe the second best middleweight in the world. And beating him will will take me to the next like take me to the next level in boxing terms and in the greater like greater scheme of things in boxing that I'll be on par with Golovkin and as a star in boxing I'll be up there with anybody. So it's a strategic move. It's it's a calculated risk. He's yeah, it's a harder fight, but it's it's a winnable fight, and it's gonna like it's it's gonna be on that terrestrial TV in America. It's gonna have a huge audience and. Um, like you know, the benefits of beating him are untold so far. You know, did you have to? Was there a big decision to be made there? Did you agonize? You say it's a calculated risk. How, how much calculation did nah, you do? Not nothing really. Um, like I said, this fight with Quillen was always on the cards, and I think um, with the whole Billy Joe Saunders situation, I don't know if it was posturing by Frank Warren, but I think they were happy with the outcome as well. That the fight on the undercard, uh, he gets to fight in America. He gets more experience, gets another fight, and then he gets to fight the winner. So I think Frank Warren was just playing his cards and making sure he got the best deal for Billy Joe Saunders, and that, that's, that was the whole thing. The figures quoted for your fight uh, uh, your fight against Karboff uh, weren't massive in terms of what we hear about sports people earning necessarily, but uh, in your own head, are you thinking, right, this career doesn't necessarily last forever, you're going to do your best to be a, a world champion for a long time, it mightn't necessarily happen. Uh, and hence, you're happy for your people to go in and and play those games with Frank Warren, pay pay that step aside fee, so that you can make sure to fight the fight that you think is going to benefit benefit you financially. And mm. I know it hasn't. It's not that that's been your number one motivation mm. over your career. I don't think it could have worked out the way it it has if that was the case. But at this stage, does it have to be a pretty big consideration? Yeah, it does. And like I'm 30 years old now, and um, to buy my own house and and secure my family's future and things like that. That they have to be like it's no good being world champion walking around and being on the dole when the fucking your career is over. You know what I mean? So I have to take those things into consideration. And um, yeah, this will be the biggest payday of my life, and winning it will lead to more. How far down the line uh, does the planning go in terms of Saunders is next up if you win this mm. fight? Is there contingency if you don't win for a rematch? Do you have to always look those two fights ahead? Um, there's another. F- well, in the contract, there's another th- fight. Um, it's not necessarily a rematch if I lose. There's no rematch clause, but um, there will be another fight in in America if I lose. But um, I'm going to be Quillen. I know I am. I'm yeah, I'm going to beat him, and uh, and then it'll be Billy Joe Saunders. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and possibly Golovkin. After that, you're going to Monte Carlo yeah. this weekend. And I've, I've heard some quotes this morning from you um, from a Dan Raphael piece on ESPN that. You'd fancy maybe unifying the title at some stage? Like, if everything goes to plan in my mind, this time next year I'll be fighting Golovkin in the, in a, in the biggest middleweight fight in a long, long time. The uh, Without getting too far ahead of ourselves, the fight against Quillen, we've been watching uh, a Grantland mm. short movie on him, Murph, uh, sort of an eight-minute uh, job. I don't know if you've seen this, Andy, but it, it tells uh, the the story of, of Peter Quillen, which is w- w- your classic boxing, yeah. sort of rags to riches is right, but from the street into the, into yeah, the ring. Yeah, real of. hard-scrabble existence kind of thing, you know. And 
it's the sort of thing actually that if he wasn't fighting Andy Lee, he'd probably be you know he would be a guy that you'd be looking out for on the back of it, you know. But I mean, it is. It's it's actually it's a it's a brilliant kind of eight minute sort of short film about the guy's uh, the guy's life where he was out in the streets, moved to New York at the age of seventeen because he thought he kind of wouldn't survive on the streets in his hometown in Michigan and kind of built it up from there. But, I mean, it is obvious that he said that, you know, for uh, he was born in Grand Rapids. Grand I think, Rapids, yeah. yeah. And uh, uh, for the first 18 years, and thanks to New York for making me a man, he said in the ring afterwards. So the tie to New York, the tie to Brooklyn in particular, is really big for him, which kind of brought home to me just how big a deal it is that you're going over to the Barclays Centre in Brooklyn. You know, any bit of basketball fans know that's where the Brooklyn Nets play. It's, you know, an amazing arena. And the f- you're kind of going into the belly of the beast in in a lot of ways by heading over there. Yeah, but it's not new, you know what I mean. And, and like, I think I'll have more New York and Irish people that already had a million calls and messages. People who are going to go there, so I think we'll be well represented there. And yeah, like he's not a bad fella. We met actually a couple of times out on, when I was in New York a few times, just out socially and stuff. We ended up being in the same. Uh, nightclub one time and just talking and he seems nice enough like there's always been respect between us but we always kind of knew that we might fight someday so there was that kind of that kind of respect between us you know what kind of, what kind of stuff are you talking about boxing yeah and how are you and good luck with your fight and this and that and you know I see you la- we're just talking about each other's last fights and kind of thing and you did well and it was all like very Scope, scoping each other out yeah and just like yeah. you know <laughs> and that, like what's yeah, he wearing yeah. what kind of shoes are they like, <laughs> you know, uh, the um, macho yeah. posturing or something. Yeah. He seems uh, the uh, he, he obviously vacated the belt that you now uh, have that we now see in front of us mm-hmm. here. Um, I know there was some sort of political moves behind that. It seems is there any sense in your mind that he actually was wary of fighting Karabov? And if so, does that give you confidence that maybe there's a mental chink there? I don't know. I don't know. Um, I, like I, I can't say that. I, I don't think he would be afraid of fighting Karabov. Um, I kind of much know the reasons. Well, I kind of just, not from reading the articles, that know that he gave it up because he's promoted him win the purse bid, right, like, well, Jay-Z won the purse bid. His manager used to manage Destiny's Child, and then there's the conflict there. So it's... Right. That's the short story, like... <laughs> Destiny, but, uh, I didn't know yeah, Destiny's yeah, Child yeah, were going to yeah, be involved yeah, in... Beyonce and... Yeah, yeah, well, that's obviously... Yeah. I mean, of course, your career is going to be defined by yeah. the Destiny's Child, Jay-Z. That, like, that's how this rivalry. opportunity came about for me, to fight Karbov. Yeah. Um, Jay-Z and Beyonce won a purse bid came into boxing bought this fight for mega money and then Al Heyman Peter Quillen's manager said you're not fighting on it so then he vacates the belt Billy Joe Saunders was next in line where he was already assigned to fight um, Chris Eubank and Adam did a deal with Frank Warren that if Andy wins the fight he'll fight Billy Joe and the next thing I'm in the fighting getting a chance to fight so that's just how it is and then the whole other thing is that now Al Heyman, in the meantime Al Heyman has worked this deal with NBC where it's the biggest deal in boxing for I don't know how many years and I get the chance to fight there and uh, you know it's just all kind of lined up it's yeah, mad it's, and it's, it's, it's brilliant the way it's worked out because the NBC part of this is huge NBC hasn't shown big time boxing for 30 odd years mm. uh, the guys commentating on the fights are the same people it's, it's uh, Marv Albert who's his legendary commentator Sugar Ray Leonard and Al Michaels is uh, people will have seen Al Michaels NFL commentating fans. on the on the Super Bowl yeah. recently, but he was the old boxing host. He's hosting these these shows on NBC. This is absolutely massive. Yeah, yeah, and like I remember from the time I spent in America, people would often remind me, "Oh, we used to watch you know Sunday afternoon boxing on NBC Worldwide of Sports," and now it seems that they're going back to it. And 
you know, I think it'll, it's going to go. Hopefully, it'll go well. We'll see. The thing is, the pressure's on him, on Al Heyman and on MBC to because of this to make the best fights available, and that's why you're going to see a lot of like the better fighters fighting each other now. And I think that's why there's been some movement for this Pacquiao Mayweather fight as well. And um, like initially, like you wouldn't like if I was to pick a fight for me to fight if I was going to if I was going to pay the same money for everybody mm-hmm. I obviously wouldn't fight Quillen because it's a bigger risk but when they're offering you money um, that's beyond what you get paid anywhere else then you kind of have to take the fight the last fight uh, last major fight was on NBC was Larry Holmes against Carl the, the Truth Williams <laughs> back in uh, 1985 so that's that's how long they've been away yeah so it's uh, I'm sure it's a bit of an honour to be involved in yeah, that, yeah, yeah and, and you know, to represent Ireland in America, everyone's going to watch it, so it's going to be, you know. What's the plan for the next while? You're going back over, you're going to Monte Carlo, your training base again, you'll be watching the Glovkin fight, as mm. we mentioned, and it's... Uh, it's on your har- doorstep. So on your doorstep, yeah. and then the hard training for the next couple of... Yeah, months. whatever's left now, I'll be over there, I won't be coming home until, until the fight, and until after the fight. And that'll be it. You know, the routine is set. We know exactly what we're going to be doing, waking up and training and eating and sleeping, and that'll be it. And just be back into mundane life and getting ready. Well, listen, Andy, you're going to go over, defend the title, hopefully bring the belt back into us, yeah. and we'll give you another, another two hoodies. Untold hoodie riches with Andy. Great to talk to you. Thanks, Thanks very much, guys. I really was impressed with with that belt. Mm. Unbelievable. The weight, the the beauty. Yeah, it's kind of... I was nearly thinking, wow, I think they must have, you know, fake belts that go into the the ring. Because the the belts that you see on TV, it kind of seems like, you know, they're just like the... They're just the ones that they have so that if by chance in the middle of a boxing ring someone grabs it and runs off with it, it's not the actual belt. Because this is the real, the thing is the real deal that we just uh, had in TV. Two little mirrors, you see them on TV, but they, I didn't realise that you could see your reflection in them mm. uh, on, on either side of the sort of ornate design 
in the middle. Uh, yeah, serious about it. Uh, very impressed with Andy there. Always, he's always very honest, but even in talking about his reasons for taking the Quillen fight, he says it's a calculated risk. He he says, of course, this is how it has to be in boxing anyway, but he says that he has to start thinking about his future. He has to start thinking about mortgages and all these kind of things. Uh, so, therefore, he's gone for the slightly more. And also, it's a, it's, a, it's a more exciting fight. It's the one that opens him up big time in America. If he fights, especially this is looking like it could be another another bit of a punch-up, uh, if he comes through it against Quillen on NBC uh, with Sugar Ray Leonard and these boys commentating and yeah. millions watching, it's absolutely huge for his career and it really opens things up. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it it's the shortcut to really, really huge fights over the next couple of years and that's <laughs> it's pretty exciting. Anytime we interview Andy, we do get a, a very good reaction. I think he manages to transmit a belief about his abilities while at the same time sounding very humble, not unlike really most of the great sporting icons in the country, Brian O'Driscoll, Henry Shefflin, these sort, to quote Eamon Dunphy, mm. Tony McCoy, Ruby, Ruby Walsh, Walsh yeah. these sort of characters. We generally do like our sports stars to be confident, but you know, not to display that confidence too readily in conversation. The one glorious exception to this rule is our beloved 1956 1500-metre Olympic champion, Ronnie Delaney, Ken. You remember our interview with Ronnie Delaney a number of years back? <laughs> not, sh- not slow about... Uh, well, look, do you ever really get to... The kind of position that Ronnie Delaney has attained in life by hiding your light under a bushel. Is that ever likely to happen? I don't think so. I don't think so, Ken. I think he's absolutely right. Let let your little light shine, Ronnie. I listened to a lovely interview this week with Delaney by Jareth Regan on the Excellence and Irishman Abroad podcast. Now, Delaney has a John Giles standard photographic memory, so the interview is laced with really detailed, lovely stories of his childhood and his time running at Villanova University in the US. And it's also laced with what can only be described as truly stunning Roddy Delaney boasts by the great man. Try this one, for example. You may think I'm terribly self-centred, but because of the importance of my talk with you this morning, I did an analysis of the 180 races I ran, which is extraordinary. And incredibly, I was only out of the first six on three races in my life. I was always first, second or third. <laughs> there you go. It's pretty good. That's brilliant. Rightly proud. They're the money positions, you know. Yeah. We need more Irish sports people talking about that. The equivalent will be asking Brian O'Driscoll about his career and him saying, "Well, I've been running the numbers on this, and it turns out that I'm the highest try scorer in the Six Nations, the caps record holder for for Ireland, score of one of the greatest tries in Lions history." Well, again, maybe, to, maybe that's not for me to say. Maybe when Ronnie Delaney was doing interviews in 1956, he was he felt comfortable talking himself down. But yeah. n- as the years have gone on, he he, he needs to maintain that. Would his, actually be so cool if that's if that's what it will that's what it was. That all of these sportsters that we're that we've grown up with and all of their humility, Henry Shefflin, 50 years from now, basically it's unbelievably re- recreating Kilkenny teams, uh, open top bus parades down Kilkenny main streets, and just saying. You know, I won 10 All-Ireland medals, and uh, at the time, I kind of wasn't comfortable making a big deal about it, but 10 All-Ireland medals. They made a model of my head that was as big as a hot air balloon. (laughs) (laughs) You had an interesting observation from O'Driscoll's book last year, actually. Remember the the one time that he did show a bit of hubris, maybe, ahead of the England game? The one time that he started uh, shouting the odds a bit, and, well, I mean, in his own words, I think, throw them some raw meat, throw the press some raw meat, was before that England game in 2004... I think when England hadn't lost at home and uh, you know for forty matches or something crazy, and uh, he essentially said, "Oh, I wouldn't like to be under the kind of pressure there under the only way is down when you're in England's position." Uh, and Clive Woodward then menaced him with some uh, in this game, uh, you learn to stay quiet, you learn to be talking on the field, and 
Ireland ended up trouncing England. <laughs> but O'Driscoll said he would never do it again. It was too stressful. The whole process um, of of being under that kind of pressure was too stressful. But it sounded like it was a kind of a winning. Yeah, I mean, we strategy. beat the world champions. Everyone we? lapped it up. Yeah, ev- and the, then Ireland went down, mopped O'Driscoll the floor with uh, England. Goes out, talks the talk, then walks the walk. You never feel better. <laughs> would, he, than- would Brian O'Driscoll have the job in BT Sport this season if he had continued on his... Uh, <laughs> on damn right he would. He'd be really? presenting the damn thing. Yeah. yeah. The man you love to hate, Brian O'Driscoll. <laughs> the most controversial man in, uh, in sport. Coming up in today's Irish Times, second captain's football podcast. That's... Yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. But you don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I'd like to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, and I'll say it to you now. I'll go down to Anfield and we'll see them, won't we? What you doing down here, you surely man? Arrigo Saki has made some headlines in the last uh, few days. Mm. Uh, And we're going to talk a little bit about the comments that he made. in his view, there are too many coloured players in Italian youth football. Uh, and we're going to see what it was that Saki said and how that's kind of gone down over in Italy. Uh, there was also some Champions League. And again, uh, the Champions League football wasn't great this week. I mean, it's first leg, first leg, second round games are usually not the classics of the tournament. Uh, and again, the biggest story emerging from it appears to be another racism story. Uh, this, the Chelsea fans on the Paris Metro. Yeah. Uh, pushing, repeatedly pushing a guy off the train and then uh, singing about uh, how they're racist and that's the way they like it. Uh, they have an explanation for that. We can go into that. Not later. forgetting, Ken. You met our, uh, the Republic of Ireland captain. Oh, Robbie Keane, of course. Rob, yeah. Robbie Keane. <laughs> Robbie Keane. <laughs> I will hear from Robbie Keane as well. <laughs> <laughs> God, that, that is true humility. Where are you, Listen, you, I, you know, I got an interview with Ireland's international captain, but I, you know, I don't want to talk about it. It's fine. You know, it's grand. He's over-promoting really over his match. Well, he wasn't actually promoting the no, Galaxy was, match this he time. Was, uh, at, at this. He's just doing some charity work on Just uh, charity work for Crumlin Children's Hospital. All right, we'll uh, get to all that a little bit later on right now. It's time to catch up with KNBOR's finest. It's US Murph, Brian Murphy. Yes, we have to say it. Remember, this is just a football game. No matter who wins or loses. I am deeply sorry for my irresponsible and selfish behaviour. You're being extremely truculent. Whatever truculent means, if that's good, I'm there. Strike three called, and the Giants have won the World Series in Detroit. And he's out on his feet. Frank Capitino's going to let him keep it. He's got it! Touchdown! Touchdown, 40! Five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! Brian Murphy, we didn't get a chance to chat to you last week because you were too busy hanging out with Clint Eastwood and Bill Murray. <laughs> Pebble Beach, boys. That, you know, it's funny. Uh, we've talked often about uh, you guys hopefully coming one day west to uh, to the west coast of California, and uh, I always brag about our fair city of San Francisco, but man, Pebble Beach might be the place to be. It was amazing and spectacular, and it was one of the greatest weather weeks of all time. You know, this whole global warming thing and climate change, while we're seeing all these extremes, like Boston is buried in historic amounts of snow, the flip side is we here in Northern California are experiencing just unbelievably dramatic, splashy sunshine days. And it's like, hey, so what? So the planet's dying, uh, the icebergs are shrinking, the ocean levels are rising, animals are going extinct. 
Who cares? I'm at Pebble Beach. It's beautiful. It's amazing so, weather uh, for you golf. Know, short term. Look at short term, boy. Short term. Mm, I actually I saw a photograph of you talking to Ray Romano and uh, Craig T. Nelson, who we all remember, of course, from the TV series Coach. Every- oh. Yeah, I, I, someone tweeted a, a photograph into us. But Ray Romano is every, everyone loves Raymond, right? Yeah, that's, that's the Or guy. everybody loves Raymond. Serious star power there, Brian. Well, you know what's funny? You, you see these guys uh, every year at Pebble Beach. You know, the tradition of Pebble Beach is started by Bing Crosby years and years and years ago. And he had all his Hollywood pals to get together and play golf with the pros. And that was kind of, you know, they called it the clam bake, the old-fashioned uh, uh, party where you literally bake clams and drink and play music and all that. And then, of course, Bing passed on to the great uh, golf course in the sky, and the question was, what's going to become of the Bing Crosby clam bake? Well, AT&T took it over, and they've tried to keep it alive, and Clint Eastwood has become sort of the de facto commissioner of it, and he kind of hands out the invites. But it's really struggled, guys, to land, you know, A-list talent. You know, we... We just had this um, Saturday Night Live 40th anniversary special here this past weekend in America. I don't know if you guys saw it. And it was unbelievably star-studded, where guys like Robert De Niro and Jack Nicholson were reduced to just bit roles. You know, Paul McCartney, (laughs) Paul Simon, Miley Cyrus, Kanye West all performed musically. And every great cast member, Bill Murray, Eddie Murphy, you name it, they all appeared. Well, the point is, is that that whole, like, that's kind of what the Pebble Beach would like to be, but they're having trouble finding golfers who are stars, so you're left with Craig T. Nelson and Ray Romano as your big, big pulls, so those guys actually count as big stars for us, and hell, I mean, everybody loves Raymond, you gotta give it its respect, one of the great uh, syndicated comedies kind of falling in the lines of a Cheers, a Frasier, very popular through a whole generation. Craig T. Nelson also has found new fame in, in the TV show Parenthood, kind of a uh, sort of a maudlin emotional show that was uh, on NBC here. It just went off the air. So we had Craig T. and Romano sitting together. They were riffing away. We had others, but uh, I would say they're searching for A-list talent. We're kind of more on the B-minus list of talent. But, well, but, I saw, uh, yeah, I saw a little bit of the Saturday Night Live uh, 40th birthday that you talked about there, Brian. One thing that struck me about it was almost because there were so many stars in attendance, uh, the, the, the atmosphere looked a little bit strange in that there are people performing for their peers. Uh, so rather than having maybe adoring fans in the audience, uh, everybody... You know, people want to be a bit too cool to applaud or get too raucous. It was very the, – the, the crowd shots were incredible because, first of all, that studio is very, very small. I was real lucky to get to tour that place once, and it's a really intimate little studio. I'm going to guess 200 seats, 150 seats. I mean, we're talking small, man. I would imagine that the uh, Second Captain's podcast or the Second Captain's TV show on RTE gets more than that uh, of the standing room only crowd, right? So, uh, so the the tickets were very coveted, and you're right; they only went to big time, big time celebrities. So they would show like a crowd shot, and instead of seeing adoring fans, you saw literally the filmmaker Steven Spielberg and his <laughs> wife sitting next to the filmmaker George Lucas from Star Wars and his wife sitting next to Peyton Manning and Eli Manning sitting next to Larry David from Curb Your Enthusiasm and uh, and Seinfeld and all that so it was an amazing you were almost sort of slack-jawed at the amount of A-list people they got to go to it but you're right it did create sort of an unusual um atmosphere because you were performing for Spielberg and Lucas and then instead of fans but uh, for those of us, like, certainly of a certain age, I'm 47, so that means that show debuted when I was seven. You don't really realize how much of a part of your heart and soul it is and how many different things 
are ingrained in you from you know Eddie Murphy's uh, Mr. Rogers, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, and Gumby to uh, uh, Mike Myers and Dana Carvey's Wayne's World and Garth to uh, you know to uh, Joe Piscopo doing Frank Sinatra to Bill Murray lounge singer to Dan Aykroyd Bassett. I mean, all these things that just are ingrained in you that you had no idea meant so much to you until you saw them. So it was a real trip down memory lane for for many 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 of us so uh i hope you guys can get a chance to check it out i don't know if it's, it was aired on over there or if that yeah it wasn't there or... but yeah some of the clips kind of uh, made, made their way over all right but uh, i don't know if it necessarily made that much of an impact and it is interesting like that that show made such an impact on pop culture in america almost unparalleled i would, I would say compared to any other tv show yeah Murphy, and it, to come in? Uh, no and a weird kind of thing is that uh, for Amer- we we were always sold movies on the back of oh you know Saturday Night Live say Wayne's World I mean I didn't find out Wayne's World was actually based on a Saturday Night Live uh, skit until you know seven or eight years after I first saw it so it's kind of yeah they have this back uh, this grand swell of support in the American box office but they actually have to sell the gag all over again to the world because we just don't. We don't know Saturday Night Live half as well as American. Is there an argument, Brian, that the NFL Films, which is, and we flagged this up at the start of the show, we want to talk about this because Ed Sable, the founder of NFL Films, died age 98 last week. In a sport, well, maybe even in in a cultural context, but particularly in maybe a sports cultural context, would that have had a, a, a similar kind of an impact? It's not, I mean, sort of, yeah, and from the sense of um, a time in the country's history that sort of can't be replicated anymore because we all know, we go on and on and on about our fractured media landscape, you know. I do a radio show, you guys do a podcast, there's somebody else doing a blog, there's somebody else sending out a Vine, there's somebody else sending out a YouTube, and it's like our attention is so incredibly diverted and split that NFL Films was able to capture a time in this country's sporting history and make an amazing impact because of what they did, which was to recreate football games almost in the style of a military film. And I say that not even like jokingly, like Ed Sable, the man who passed away just last week at age 98, who's inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame, that's how important he is, uh, was a World War II veteran and knows that, like, the value of no military propaganda. Simple as that. Like, you know, when you can set a battle to martial strains of music and, and serious narration, people get riveted. You know, it has this uh, effect on you as a viewer. And he applied those same principles to football. And so, you know, we've talked about this many times through the years about how baseball has fallen by the wayside nationally to football. And you have to remember, though, but 50 years ago, he founded it in 1962, NFL Films. At that time, football was almost a damn near fringe sport. Imagine that. American football was, was kind of like a cult thing. It wasn't at all. Uh, I mean, people, of course, knew it. And, you know, I mean, you have pictures of uh, John F. Kennedy at a Packers game or something. I mean, they knew it, but sort of the way people know um, – I don't know, boxing or something like that. Now, back then, baseball ruled the roost. Hank Aaron and Willie Mays and, and, and those guys were playing baseball. Mickey Mantle, those were, the, those were the Tom Brady and Peyton Mannings of their day. So Ed Sable decides to do this with football. And guys, honest to goodness, if you had to list like five reasons why the NFL soared to where it's at, you know, obviously the Super Bowl, the invention of the Super Bowl became a thing. The proliferation of sports on TV was a thing. Gambling is definitely a thing. Fantasy football is definitely a thing. You could throw NFL films on that list because guys like me, 
So these things started to really hit their stride in the late 60s, all the way through the 70s, into the early 80s. Guys like me are just sitting there on a weekend, and all of a sudden, just on some programming on a Saturday afternoon, comes a half-hour show on the Oakland Raiders' history of the franchise, or the Super Bowl Seven or Super Bowl Nine between the Cowboys and the Steelers, or whatever Super Bowl it was. And it's set in super slow motion with this amazing narrator named John Facenda, who I'm sure if I or all the listeners out there don't know the name, you've heard the voice, famous for saying things like, on the frozen tundra of Lambeau Field, you know, and now you're like, frozen tundra, Lambeau Field, wow. (laughs) And they're moving in slow motion. The Green Bay Packers took the field looking for glory. And you're like, whoa, (laughs) glory, man, wow. And you're like, everything became so majestic. And then here comes the music. Honest to goodness, the music of NFL films, I would recommend you guys just go cue it up on, uh, I don't know, YouTube or iTunes or whatever. You start hearing the tunes, you feel like grabbing a helmet and charging onto the field with the Packers at Lambeau. You don't care that it's 20 below, man. You want to beat the Cowboys because the NFL Films' is, music is playing, and you are just totally captivated. And that was Ed Sable's baby, and it made football look so cool. So when you're a kid, fall rolls around. It's September. It's October. It's November. The weather, especially on the East Coast and the Midwest, gets cold. You can see your breath, and you start going, oh, this is NFL Films weather. And you start, as a kid, you narrate your own games, you know? You know, you know Stabler rolls to his left, you know? And you're, <laughs> and you're like, excited. So, yeah, it was amazing. It doesn't – it still exists. NFL Films still exists, and, and they still do good programming and fun. But it will never match that sort of 62 to 82 golden era that built a generation of football worshippers. Sports Illustrator, Brian, to capture some of what you're saying, they call it perhaps the most effective, uh, this is a while back, called it the most effective propaganda organ in the history of corporate America. And I, get, <laughs> I don't know how much you agree with, with that comment, but it certainly seems to ty- it typifies American sport in a lot of ways. Totally over the top. I mean, very very bombastic, uh, yeah. uh, showy, a bit ridiculous if you really think about it. Yeah. But the problem, the, the, I suppose the thing is, you shouldn't think about it too much. Uh, and therefore, it kind of works. You can't take your eyes or ears off it. No, you're absolutely right. The whole showmanship thing, you know, it's not, you know, I've found, you know, in Europe, of course, you guys are, are much better at understatement. You guys kind of let, let, let the event speak for itself. Whereas we're sort of like, we speak for the event. You know, it's like in the Super Bowl now is the ultimate example of that in a negative way. It's like people are now just like, oh, God, two weeks of hype and media day and all these stories and Marshawn Lynch surrounded by 100 people and him not saying anything and then people reporting on him not saying anything. And we're all just kind of like, ugh. And that's because everything's been built up to be romanticized instead of just letting it happen. We don't do that. Gosh, goes back to uh, P.T. Barnum, you know, and his salesmanship as a circus barker in the 1800s and sort of the nature of capitalism in general of marketing, 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 and pushing your product and pushing your product. And next thing you know, you have us all just we're t- we wound up hyping the event more than the event itself. And so, yeah, you're absolutely right. That said, there is an undeniable effectiveness to it. Uh, and, you know, if you – for example, the, I mentioned the Raiders and, and Ken Stabler and all that. It, the Oakland Raiders sort of mythology, and I would say, I don't know, 60% of their fan base is probably because of NFL films because they had this, this – um, they sort of had their own theme. And, I, I mean, everybody sort of knows it. Uh, da 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 
da da da da da da And it was like, da-da-da-da-da. I can hum it and sing it in my life. And John Facenda had a poem, The Autumn Wind is a Raider. And he had a poem about it. It's, 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 there's no way to describe it. They wrote a poem called The Autumn Wind is a Raider. They have a theme song called The Autumn Wind. And, and we all, like, it worked, man. It's like, it's, it's good filmmaking. And it's like any movie where you think of great, great movie scores in history. Rocky, right? Rocky's got, like, one of the greatest scores of all time. Star Wars is one of the greatest scores of all time, right? That's what NFL Films pulled off. So as much as it was, you know, corporate PR and it was brainwashing to an extent, it was extremely effective I remember Steve Mariucci, I was covering the 49ers in the late 90s, talking to Steve Mariucci, the coach of the 49ers, who now is a, a talking head on NFL Network. I, remember, I was asking him, I was doing a Q&A with him, and I asked him something like about books and movies that he reads and watches, and asked him about music that he listens to, and he said, uh, when, I, he goes, when I drive to work, I, li- I literally listen to NFL film CDs. Mm-hmm. And I was like, really? Oh, yeah, it psychs me up, man. So this is a guy who's an NFL head coach who's playing the music in his car, kind of like creating the own mythology in his commute to work, you know? So... Uh, so no doubt, the Ed Sable and his son Steve, who also was was really the guy who took it over uh, when Ed, his father got a little old, and really continued the, uh, the 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 marching the banner. And like I said, it still goes on to this day. We, uh, myself and my partner Polly Mack, we go to the Super Bowl every year, and they 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 film us, they mic us in these things called the top ten lists, and they just keep this programming going. Top ten uh, left-handed quarterbacks of all time, or top ten uh, running backs under six feet, and whatever. And so it's just constant programming, 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 and building up the mythology of the NFL. So do yourself a favor, get the NFL film CD, and you'll find yourself uh, moved to tears, and uh, and and moving, coming to Lambeau Field, and uh, and paying a pilgrimage. Uh, yeah, and it's interesting actually because uh, quite a few of our listeners said that they saw you uh, doing some of those top ten uh, because Sky Sports devoted a channel for the entire week of the Super Bowl. So we were getting tweets saying, "Oh, you know, US Murphy is on <laughs> talking about the top ten <laughs> left-handed quarterbacks or whatever." But I mean, you know, we 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 do kind of talk about it as a kind of tongue-in-cheek, you know, bombastic, all the rest. But it it's, it uh, provides one thing which is absolutely vital, and a thing that I wish. I really, really wish the GA had uh, over here, which is 100 years, or 100 years, but 40, 50 years of brilliant film footage of games that, you know, TV, many, many TV stations in the 60s and 70s actually just taped over film because it was so expensive. Whereas mm. NFL Films has this huge repository of brilliant footage of the games from the 60s and 70s. And basically, it's a, a mythology you know, uh, uh, that you can track that, uh, unrivaled in any other sport. It's an excellent point, and the, the fact of the matter is you just got a thought in my head there that if Ed Sable and Steve Sable in their prime came over and did the GAA finals in hurling and football, NFL film style, you guys would freaking love it, man. <laughs> you would love it. It would be... It would be amazing. And all these names that you guys know throughout history that have performed great in the finals at Croke Park, set to a certain kind of music and narration and slow motion, would just be beyond legendary in your minds, as if they aren't already. And there's an argument, is, is it better just to remember it in your own mind, or is it better to have it you know, made into a military-style propaganda film 
Well, I am here to tell you that, you know, while memory is fun and great and everything, and I am, of course, a huge baseball fan, and baseball doesn't do what NFL films did. So I remember baseball just in my own memory, and I kind of just, but there's no denying that, you know, two things can be equally true. It's fun to just remember it on your own, and it's also fun to have it memorialized by a skilled filmmaker and a skilled uh, musical score artist. And you're right. To be honest, you know, you guys know I have two little boys, seven and three now, and as they're coming of age, I'm trying to teach them about the world, I know for a fact that come, you know, the January's in the future when NFL films, because what they do is they start replaying all the NFL films Super Bowl Films. They all do a half-hour Super Bowl show. I know for a fact I'll, I'll sit them down and say, you got to watch this. you got to see Super Bowl 16 uh, when the 49ers won their first Super Bowl, or Super Bowl 19 when Joe Montana outdueled Dan Marino, or Super Bowl 23 when Joe Montana hit John Taylor in the back of the end zone with 15 seconds left. I want them to see that through the eyes of NFL films because it will then be ingrained in their, in their memory and teach it does, and ultimately what it does is it's like a great history book that keeps history alive. So it's hard to hear that GAA taped over their great matches and, and you wouldn't be able to get your, your paws on the, you know, the autumn wind is a cork man, you know, or something <laughs> like that. Brian, just lastly, before we let you go, uh, the other big American media news since we last chatted was John Stewart announcing he's leaving The Daily Show. So I must ask you, are you in the running to take over? Ah, <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine? If if you tried to do that show, well, first of all, he's got a great team of writers, right? Yeah. So, I mean, like, let's not remember. But if you try, I mean, singular talents that come along, you know, in our American views, David Letterman, Johnny Carson, you know, and John Stewart, truly revolutionary, right? Like, truly rewrote the rules, and he took news which had been consumed a certain way for 50 years on TV and completely turned it on its head to the point where, guys, I mean, I tell you, that every, almost every American kid 25 and under gets their news from Jon Stewart on the Daily News, and they do not get it from the major networks. Hell, we had another controversy with our, our major network anchor over here named Brian Williams from NBC lying about things that happened to him in Iraq and Afghanistan, and that's caused a huge problem. And it just almost shined a brighter light on how Jon Stewart sends up all those guys and winds them up and takes the piss out of all those guys. And so what a career hat off. I was a little older than the Jon Stewart target demographic, but I would be one of those people who would see all the YouTube clips that would go viral when he would have a particularly strong rant or thought on something that would happen, even things as serious as 9-11 when they happened, and he would give you incredible perspective and energy and intelligence and originality that just came from nowhere else. Of course, he spawned uh, the Colbert Report and, uh, and this new show, John Oliver. We have an Englishman over here named John mm-hmm. Oliver, who is one of his writers who's now launched his show called Last Week Tonight, and that's the, just finished its first year on HBO, and it's basically like he's basically doing the Jon Stewart show all over again, but just with his voice instead of Jon Stewart's. And he was, a, you know, so now he spawned a tree, a coaching tree, as it were, like Bill Walsh did. So 16 years, revolutionary, funny as hell, never to be missed. Uh, what a legend, man. The hat is off to Jon Stewart, boys. The hat is off to you, Brian Murphy. Great stuff as always. Thanks a million. All the best, guys. Take care. I say I'm a million percent. That is better than a hundred percent. I'm confined giants at both stadium and Paris. I'm going to reflect slower. We got a date with Destiny right now. Yeah.
That open Raiders commentary that Brian mentioned was the clip that Simon picked out for the start of the show. Yeah. So good, good choice, good uh, editorial decision there by Simon. It's almost like we've been working together for ten years, and we there's kind of a mind meld thing going on here between ourselves and US Marks. Also, an excellent John Facenda impression by Brian. Excellent and repeated. I felt like I was in the middle of an NFL film there. Yeah. The voice of God. The voice of Brian. (laughs) The voice of God is very good. I mean, I, I sometimes... Did he that, actually do God, though, in any movies? Or? No, I don't think so. I think that there was one guy in the 1950s who, you know, during the swords and sandals, ethics so and all the rest, thing. I think there may have been one guy who played God in all of those. Booming out from behind a cloud. Yeah. I always think that, say, in Crow from Park... From the burning bush. Yeah. That, uh, you know, when you go to big GA games, and I have actually, I've watched quite a few GA games from the sideline, and it's even more uh, obvious from down there, but when... They announced substitutions in a half-full Crow Park. Mm. It really is like God telling you, you failed. You know? <laughs> it's like substitution on the Galway team. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. This, is, this really does sound as if uh, you've been banished. One other American story I wanted to pick up on. Well, Lance has had a bad week. He's lost 10 million. He's lost precisely $10,238.50 this week. 10 million to SCA Promotions, an insurance company that had grudgingly paid him his Tour de France win bonuses over the years. And just today, the news came in that he has had to pay another $238.50 to the court in Aspen for his recent um, careless driving charge. <laughs> not, not a good week overall, but we give enough time to Lance. The story I wanted to mention in a bit more detail uh, was Alex Rodriguez, a man who actually whips up a lot more hate and anger than Lance Armstrong does. It's the New York Yankee who's coming back from his year-long drugs ban. A-Rod returns to spring training tomorrow, and there's some really good stuff being written about this this week. You can read Dave Hannigan's piece in the Irish Times today, which outlines the basics of the story really well. If you have some more time, I would recommend a big feature on ESPN.com, written by J.R. Moringer, most famous in a sports context for his work on Andre Agassi's autobiography. What Moringer does is spends a lot of time, it seems, with Rodriguez on his year off, chronicles the downfall and what he's done to put things right in his own head, really. This includes a lot of detail on therapy he's had, on going back to college, on the, the round of phone calls he had to make to friends and family when he finally admitted to taking performance-enhancing drugs. A lot of the big gaping hole in it is, and it's referred to by Moringer, there's no detail on the actual doping itself, nothing, yeah. on why he did it, what he did, when he did it. And he's always maintained that he... That's kind of the most done, interesting thing yeah. about the story, is it not? Well, uh, you know, funny I mean, enough... Who I, cares about this? Who cares about this Alex Rodriguez guy? I'd like to know how a guy with his profile thinks it's okay to be a cheat. I'd like to. I'd like to know more about and that. And that's actually. I honestly um, couldn't care less about Alex Rodriguez apart from that. Yeah, but that's actually what the article is about. Mm. You know, the, what the article is about is why did he cheat, and uh, his reaction to cheating. I mean, it, it's weird. You know, like a lot of people say are interested. The last thing that you've just talked about there, a lot of people are interested in reading the uh, Floyd Landis book or reading the Tyler Hamilton book and. Here's the X's and O's of how exactly you dope, you know? Like, for me, I'm not actually that interested in that. What I'm actually interested in is why a sportsman as unbelievably gifted as Alex Rodriguez would decide to dope. And, and, you know, he's admitted to doping from 2010 to 2012 Mm. or something like that. Now, if, if you take it at face value and say that's when he started cheating, you know, he's in the autumn of his career, why would he decide to risk it all? You know, there are obviously questions as, you know, how long did has the doping actually gone on for? But, I mean, the piece is, I, I love it. I think the piece is one of the best things I've, I've, I've uh, read in the last 12 months. It's absolutely brilliant. I do, would urge you all to read it. But the, the, the interesting thing about it is, Moringer himself says, 
I'm not going to quote Alex Rodriguez. You wrap quotation marks around anything Alex Rodriguez says and you can smell the bullshit a mile off. Yeah. So the piece itself is, right, I'm going to try and in, like put myself into A-Rod's brain and see what he's actually thinking about. And uh, I, 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 Anything he says just sounds implausible just by virtue of it being in his voice. Yeah. Yeah, and, and but but see, and he spent maybe a decade lying to <laughs> lying to America, you know. <laughs> so like that's you know, I, I think it's an it's an amazing thing to read this profile where you know for a fact the writer has been with this person for months, yeah. has like followed him around for months and months, knows him as well as any journalist will ever know him, and doesn't quote him once because. That, it, it's going it, to ruin Moringer's piece if I quote this guy. Yeah, it, like it, it, in every piece that you write, say, well, maybe this piece needs a few quotes. The last, this piece needed not to have any quotes. <laughs> we will <laughs> tweet this. Thing. Yeah, we'll tweet this uh, link to this article. But a couple of tidbits don't help Rodriguez's cause, and there's not much sympathy. He's coming back to the the. Uh, Yankees have tried to dispute his contract and various. He's about to get a massive bonus when he hits another. It's a very small amount of home Five runs. Yeah, he needs runs. to uh, get up to number three on the all time list. Number f- he, Willie Mays is on six sixty. He's on six five four, and he uh, Alex Arod is fifth. Yeah, so, so he needs be- to move up to fourth, and he gets a massive bonus. Obviously, the Yankees are disputing this, and there's doubt as to whether the Yankees want him back at all. But he's back there in, in training as of this week. But a couple of tidbits really don't help his cause. I think in this article, his training partners during his season off have been the Jamaican track team, <laughs> not a group held up as world leaders in the fight against doping, and Barry Bonds, the most famous drugs cheat in baseball. Number one on that list, though. Before A-Rod. He's number one on the home run list. Yeah, yeah. yeah this is a, forget. This is a quote from Oranger. Regardless of the scepticism that haunts Bonds' legacy, regardless of how it might look when the two are pictured together, Rodriguez admires the hell out of Bonds, sees him as a mystic, a hitting scientist. He looks to Bonds for guidance only he can provide. Bonds has no peer as a hitter, Rodriguez believes, but especially as an older hitter, who stayed fresh and lethal into his 40s. Uh. Rodriguez wants to ask him a million questions. <laughs> one, one question will probably help you out, I'd say there. Uh, I can't believe this guy isn't training with Lance. Yeah. What, like, like Lance is sitting there going, I can't believe it. $10 million, then the $238.50, and now the news that I'm the only person A-Rod that A-Rod's not going to train with. Yeah, yeah. And the only untouchable in his eyes. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, it's, it's an amazing image that he presents us with, himself and Barry Bonds, just like... Hitting into the, it out late into the yeah, night, and the idea that Barry not like it's coming. You're coming at it from the Arod point of view. It's like right, okay, I can kind of feel you know, uh, like I'm you know that I can discuss things with Barry Bonds that I couldn't discuss mm. with anyone else. Like Arod still has his career. You know, he's 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 still trying to get back. Barry Bonds literally has no one. That and that's what I was kind of re- when I was reading that. It was like, well, this is kind of weird from A-Rod's point of view but from Barry Bonds' point of view is A-Rod the only guy that will sit at the foot of Barry Bonds and you know tell me how you did how you did it yeah, Barry I don't think Barry Bonds cares that much funny enough I think he's I think there's even I don't know Bonds is another one I'd like to see Moringer spend a bit of time with him but uh, we will tweet that as I mentioned just fine Bonds by the yeah, way surely yeah. doesn't want Alex Rodriguez to actually catch up with him and take over his record well this is part of the article part of their interaction he keeps saying in the early part of their their training together he says oh you hit it like that you're never going to catch me you know mm, yeah. this, is, this is his taunt his boast he's to, 106 yeah. behind and A-Rod is 38 so I, Bonds reckons he's safe enough, yeah. but uh, 
Yeah, maybe don't don't share all of the trade secrets <laughs> there, uh, Barry. Just finally, in the doping theme, the UFC made a big announcement this week about implementing year-round drug testing of its athletes, both in and out of competition. You know, the type of thing that most serious sports have been doing for years. And this is after a string of recent positive tests, including one of its biggest stars, Anderson Silva. Up to now, there had been sporadic out-of-competition testing and it's just check out the stats, right? The UFC, uh, so they did this big press conference where they say uh, that we, we acknowledge there's a big problem here. We are going to do something about it. We're going to get an outside agency involved. They haven't said who that is, but presumably USADA or someone like who's this. The so, guy, who's the guy Lad said was he was going to have on board? Oh, Don, uh, Don Kaplan. Well, that would have been that would have been great, but that never happened. Yeah, yeah. Uh, at the it, time, it, yeah. then he decided after six days to have that. That's yeah, a terrible you, idea. Yeah, the proof is going to be in the pudding here at UFC. I mean, they're miles behind in this. The, the stuff they're talking, as I mentioned, that they're bringing in here is really, really pretty basic. The idea that you don't just test when they're fighting. That maybe some of these fighters are getting up to stuff when they're uh, training and, and building. Their, their bodies etc but this is the stat I wanted to mention right UFC and this is UFC released UFC fighters submitted to enhanced out of competition testing 19 times since 2013 so just 19 tests which uh, in itself is laughable in 26.3% of those instances an athlete tested positive that 26.3% failure rate is alarming to us said Fertitta the guy who, uh, who, who owns the whole gig mm. in fact I'm looking at that 19 so that's probably 5 well, is five it 5 out of 19 yeah. Yeah. incredible uh, and this is only very basic testing. If they start to introduce biological passports, etc., you would wonder uh, exactly what's going on there. But enough drugs talk. Let's end with one more clip from a wholesome, clean-cut, and incredibly boastful athlete. A short one here from Ronnie Delaney. It goes back to philosophy as well. My philosophy was to win. And I saw no point in trying to break my gut and smashing guys every week. If I could get away running 4-6, I ran 4-6. If I had to run a world record, I ran the world record. That's, the, that's what we <laughs> want to hear. <laughs> All right, that's it from us. We've got our football podcast out later on. Next Monday show, we'll come at you a little later than usual. We're going to be recording it in the evening at the Sugar Club. It's our Irish Times second captain sports night with Rabo Direct. So we're really looking forward to our evening out there. We'll have a football podcast ready in the afternoon, as always. In the meantime, thanks very much. Uh, thank Ken first. Thank you. Huh? Thank you also, Kieran. Thanks, Kenneth. Thanks, Unzi. Thank you, Kieran. Thanks very much for listening. And just check, uh, check out any details you want in the show. irishtimes.com forward slash second captain. Stay here. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.